Welcome to the One Small Change podcast with me, Dr. Simon Chard. I'm a cosmetic dentist, public speaker and startup entrepreneur, but most importantly, I'm a lifelong disciple of self-improvement and optimization. In this podcast, we present conversations with world-class industry leaders, sharing their expertise in high performance, spirituality, business and health. It's my job to dissect their key behaviours, routines and mindsets so that you can implement them today to create balance and success in your life. Today's episode is brought to you by Enlightened Tooth Whitening. As a cosmetic dentist, I've used Enlightened to provide tooth whitening results for my patients since I qualified. And the reason that I always come back to Enlightened is they guarantee that B1 result that means my patients are always happy with the outcome. So if you're a dentist, I'd thoroughly recommend reaching out to Enlighten to do one of their free online training courses. And if you're a patient, have a chat with your dentist today about Enlighten Tooth Whitening or even look out for one of their regional centres of excellence. Let's get on with the show. Hi team and welcome to uh, episode 21 of the One Small Change podcast. Today we're coming out live with the wonderful Mo Gauda. Uh, Mo is chief, uh, former chief business officer of Google X. He's a serial entrepreneur and he's the author of the fantastic book, uh, Solve for Happy, which we are definitely going to dive deep into today. Um, when I first created this podcast, Mo was one of the first guests that I had um, had uh, dreamed of having on the show. Um, his, his story um, first became apparent to me uh, when I was watching Channel 4 News. Um, shortly after uh, the passing of his son, Ali, the tragic premature passing and Mo's attitude towards happiness, joyfulness um, and his willingness to share these these thoughts and, and concepts was something that really struck me. And, and that's been many years uh, in my own conscious. Um, so Mo's uh, big moonshot is to uh, reach a billion people and make them happier. So I'm really hoping that we can share that today. Um, I'm going to bring Mo in now. Um, so we'll just bring him in. Hopefully this will all work okay. Oh, it worked. There we go. Hi, Mo. How are you doing? Yeah. Um, I'm amazed that it's working. Uh, <laughs> IG Live never... It, it really always almost disappoints me. IG Live is like a big challenge for my technical skills. Yeah. So, well, at, le- at least you've managed your expectations already, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Whatever would have happened, I would be okay. With it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But we'll definitely yeah. we'll definitely get onto that concept today. But um, yeah, as I just said in that intro, thank you so much for coming on. Um, your story is one that's that's. One of the few that's really stuck from me for, for many, many years, um, as I say, sort of randomly turned on Channel 4 News one day and, and saw you there talking about your, yeah. um, your very sad but your very powerful story. And, um, and since then, I've, I've read, I've read the, uh, the wonderful book as well, and, and I'm really looking forward to getting into the details of that today. So, um, Thank you. I, I, uh, it was a, a, a stroke of good luck that we met through Channel 4. I mean, one of the <laughs> few good things that uh, news networks would provide. Yes, indeed, indeed. I normally recommend my followers not to watch the news. <laughs> um, and I, neither do I, yeah. But um, so Mo, I'd love to start, uh, as I often do in this podcast, by going back to um, your childhood, um, which is where, where you start the book in many ways. 
and um, you were brought up in Egypt, from what I understand, and and uh, how how your um, your upbringing shaped the person that you were, and how that eventually led to you arriving at Google. And I know that's that's many many years in between those two things, but I'd love to hear about that that transition for the listeners. Yeah, I I am a huge believer that there is a lot more uh, that makes us in nurture than nature. You know the debate about genetics or or upbringing. I, I believe that your upbringing really makes a difference in many, many ways. And and the interesting side of things is that uh, I was, um, you know, probably I, I always say I'm probably the luckiest person you've ever met, uh, even though, you know, we, you know, I was raised in, in Egypt, uh, um, educated in public schools, public university, which I'm very, very grateful for. I mean, I received an education when many in the world don't. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, it was probably not the kind of education that my mathematical brain uh, craved, if you want. I was really, really into math in a way that may have enabled me to be a, a bit more than I am in mathematics today. I was very much into physics, never got that. I was very much in computer, into computer science, got, got very little education around it and so on. And But, but I, did, I was also blessed because I had two parents that were almost everything a child needs. So, so I had, uh, you know, what, what a child mainly needs um, a bit of discipline, a lot of love, and you know, some smarts and some direction is, is what I believe. And and I and between my mom and my dad, my mom being an academic who uh, really was all about let's get things done right and very systemic and so on. And my dad was, in all honesty, a brilliant engineer. Uh, my mom was more the discipline, my dad was more the love, uh, which was really interesting. Uh, and, and between them, I feel I had very few real shocking, lasting traumas in my life. And one of the books I'm working on now is called Stressed. I'm, I'm working on it with a, a dear friend, Alice Law. And, and uh, you know, in, in Stressed, uh, we, we speak deeply about the effect of long-term trauma on, on your levels of stress and how it could lead you to uh, to situations that wouldn't affect others, but you know, would crumble you. And and in a in an interesting way, um, I think a big part of my life was defined really by a childhood that was pushed to excellence, but with a lot of love in it. And I think that, you know, and I think that really made me a big difference for me. And it's a almost a plea that I I, I you know take to all parents. Uh, whatever you do with your children, you know, there needs to be a ton of love involved because. The one thing that breaks them is love. I think uh, the end of my uh, my youthhood, if you want, in my very early twenties, I lost my dad, and you know I actually really never realized that most of my work on happiness um, was a result of the loss of my dad, because my dad, who was really the fountain of love and kindness, and you know really a, a, an amazing father in many many ways, uh, died of depression, and and so. Uh, in the very last few years of his life, uh, he was a very successful, incredibly brilliant engineer. And, and, uh, and in the last few years, you know, politics in his company changed things and he sort of felt that he lost his baby. Uh, you know, he had a major project to reinvent Egypt's roads and, and bridges and so on. And, and that really affected him badly and I could see the spiral. And it remained in me, uh, I would probably say, until maybe four or five years ago is when it hit me that the reason why I hate unhappiness so much is because it took my father. Uh, and and I, I, I promise you, I didn't know that. 
there was something in me that just rejected unhappiness. And I never really knew that it was deep, deep inside. It was because of the loss of my father. Overall, I will have to say, again, I, I'm extremely lucky in what I was given. I was very empowered as a child. So, you know, I would say I want to learn the piano and my parents would squeeze money and try to get me a very, you know, a, a used piano to try and learn it. And then I, you know, a few weeks later, I would say, okay, did okay, but I think it's the guitar. And so <laughs> a couple of couple of yeah and, and then carpentry and then mosaics and then i you know i really and they would pour whatever resources they had on me to explore and 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 you know really supported me in that journey until i found what i was about if you will and how did you come to that realization five years ago about your dad uh, you've obviously done a lot of work on happiness over many many years i think more than probably about almost 10 years ago now i think was when you've around that sort of time okay, more so, so where did where did that realization come from? My work on happiness it started when I was twenty nine, and and it started for the for the most unusual reason because, uh, I, I, as I said, I started in Egypt, huh? so I had nothing. My I promise you, when I my first job was a, a systems engineer, I was a very serious geek. I still am, but I don't say that publicly because no, you know my, my CEO job would be. Uh, at Jeopardy, they don't want geeks there. But I'm a serious <laughs> geek, right? And, uh, and and you know, as a serious geek, uh, I um, my first job at IBM was a very technical job, and you know, uh, didn't really pay much. I remember vividly, it was six hundred and fifty pounds, which would be equivalent uh, Egyptian pounds, which would be equivalent, I think, to maybe a hundred and a hundred dollars a month or something like that. And, you know, I was in love with my college sweetheart. I still love her dearly, even though separated five years ago. Uh, and, you know, and she and I would barely make ends meet, but we were the happiest people ever. And, you know, by age 29, I, I said at the beginning, I'm the most fortunate person that you know. My knowledge of mathematics, uh, you know, with, in combined with the dot-com bubble, if you want, uh, I became a day trader. I taught myself entirely from scratch to day trade. Uh, I got one book, if I remember uh, uh, correctly, by a professor, a Russian professor called uh, Alexander Elder. And I, it, basically it was a, a book mostly of equations. Okay. And I just looked at the equations, not the trading styles. And I, you know, somehow managed to develop my own trading system and made a pile of money, like unbelievable amounts of money. Uh, and, and I made them in a way that basically bombarded, you know, exp um, um, I don't know what you call it, uh, catapulted me into a very different life. By age 29, I had my college sweetheart was my wife. We had two amazing kids. I had a four bedroom villa with a massive swimming pool and a garden and four cars parked outside, you know, and, and I was totally miserable, like clinically depressed. And, and the contrast was weird. Huh? You had nothing by 25, and you were the happiest person on, the, on earth. You had everything uh, by, by 29, by age 29, I was miserable, okay? And that contrast kick-started kick me. I remember vividly the moment where my daughter, Aya, uh, I, have, I have Ali and Aya, my son and my daughter, and Aya, Aya is, is, is the sunshine of life. She, she's everything. She really is happiness itself, okay? And, and she, you know, maybe she was four at the time, or five maybe, jumping up and down on a Saturday morning, 
and telling me, Papa, you know, today we're going to go out and do this, and then we're going to go to the, that place. And, you know, she's very excited, and I was grumpy doing some grumpy thing, you know, like grumpy people do. And I looked at her and I said, can we please be serious for a minute? Okay. To a four-year-old. Can you imagine, Simon? <laughs> I've got a three-year-old, so I don't think she would listen to me if I said that. <laughs> can you imagine that, right? And, and, and you know, I, I basically said, can, and I could see her heart break. Okay. I could literally, in her eyes, as the tears came down, I could see her heart break. And I remember that day when I said, I don't like me. I don't want this person. This is not the person that I know. And I basically started from there. I started, it must have been, uh, if the calculations are correct, it must have been 1998, something like that, 1999. And, uh, and then since then, I, I've been on that journey ever since. I mean, I got, I got reasonable uh, breakthroughs four years in, 2004 specifically was the year of the science of happiness, if you want. Uh, where I developed the equation and the model and the idea of happiness is the absence of unhappiness and so on. But, but then I continued to work on it. Of course, the loss of my son added the whole spectrum of happiness during grief and, and the idea of death. Uh, and then uh, basically, um, you know, until today, I'm actually working on stress. I'm working on, uh, you know, what I call half monk, the idea of mixing your, your ability to live happily while you're completely productive in the modern world. I'm working on my feminine side, which I think is a mega important part of happiness is to be balanced in terms of masculine and, fe and feminine to who your true self is and so on. And I continue to work on it probably till the day I go. Well, there's, there's definitely a few points that I'm going to come back to later on in the uh, in the talk, especially that happiness versus productivity um, discussion, because that's that was actually one of the questions that I uh, that I had in mind. But you, you've met you mentioned Ali there and um, I'd, I'd love if you could tell us a bit more about the the balance between grief and happiness, which I think was the thing that startled me most when hearing your story. Um, I, were, I was listening to your book on Audible as I was driving into work <clears throat> and, and your rendition of, of how Ali was um, and not only just your son, but also your best friend literally brought me to tears and it was very, very moving. Um, and... Um, and yet you're able to maintain such happiness. And I know many people, when faced with the same, um, the same presentation of, of events, as you, as you mentioned at the start, would crumble and, and would never recover from it um, in, a, in a functional manner. But um, I'd love if you could tell us a bit more about how you've managed that, because I think it would give so much value to people who, do, who are grieving. We will, we will all lose people at certain times in our lives, some far too soon and, and some when it's the right time. But um, it'd be really helpful, I think, if you could talk yeah. to that. There's, there's never a right time. I mean, uh, I, I, I still miss him so much. It's uh, actually, when you mentioned his name, it just touches my heart. But there is, I think that this is a very, very complex topic. Um, there is a bit of life that can be understood in the physical universe and a bit of life that is not physical, okay? And I don't expect everyone to be uh, spiritual, uh, but there needs to be a very specific understanding of death if you want to handle grief in a, in a, in a, in a complete comprehensive way, if you want. I'll, I'll come back to this at the end, but let me start by saying this. Um, I had two uh, um, uh, um, 
options in front of me when Ali left. Okay, uh, one option was to grieve for the rest of my life. Uh, you know, I could take that as extreme as I want. I could literally hit my head against the door every day, 17 times and cry. Okay. And by the end of my life, it wouldn't bring Ali back. Okay. Uh, on my deathbed, I would look back at, you know, at my life and I would have a huge bump on my head and I wouldn't have my son. Okay. Uh, the other was to accept this reality. Hmm? And when you accept this reality, it's not a, a sign of defeat. It's a, it's a sign of strength. Hmm? When, when life changes, like when we were all locked down, right? Some of us, you know, kept going crazy and screaming and feeling angry about the prime minister and, you know, whatever, you know, and they were still locked up. Hmm? And, and some of us just said, oh, I'm locked down. What can I do about this? It's a, actually, in, in Solve for Happy, if you remember, I use an interesting example from dentists. I, I basically say, you know, imagine if you go to a dentist and, and you're not supposed to do a root canal, which is never a pleasant uh, procedure. We try, we try our best. Uh, and we try our best to make it nice. But... <laughs> you, you do, and you do an amazing job. You do an amazing job. But, but at the end of the day, even if you, you're the best at it and, you know, you do it perfectly, it's still unpleasant. Yeah. Imagine if the, if the dentist gave you two options, one option that basically said, okay, so this is going to be an hour of unpleasantness, but it's really going to take away the pain and everything's going to be fine uh, as option one. And then option two, he said, and by the way, there's a new technology. I can give you a little button. Okay. And after the one hour of unpleasantness, every time you want to feel the unpleasantness again, press the button and you will feel it again. Okay. And again, and again for the rest of your life. And I think if you really think about it, you know, it's painful enough to lose a child. What's the point in torturing yourself about it? So, so this is the very basic of the, of the logic. And, and that logic came to me at a very uh, early stage in grief. Okay. Uh, you know, because of my position at Google at the time and the relationships I've built in the door, you know, with the Dubai government officials and the Dubai, you know, CEOs and so on. Uh, when Ali left, uh, I received a call from a very high, uh, you know, official in, in the government that said, we're very sorry we heard what happened. It was a medical error, a, a surgery that's gone wrong. Uh, and, and so they said, we're going to get to the bottom of this and the right things will be done. The right uh, measures will be taken. And they said, they asked and said, do you mind if we perform an autopsy on Ali's body? And so I looked at his griefing mother next to me and, you know, Nibel, if, if you've ever seen her, is the cutest human being you can ever see. Huh? She's very beautiful inside and out and, and very fragile and very uh, loving in every possible way. And Ali was everything to her as well. And so she, she raised her head with a tear in her eye and said, will it bring Ali back? And when I asked her, should we perform an autopsy? And she said, will it bring Ali back? Okay. And, and that really freezes you because... Yes, they can perform an autopsy. They can do what they want. They can, you know, go after the surgeon or not go after the surgeon. They can take preventive measures for the next patient. Nothing's going to bring Ali back. And I think that hit. Hmm? There are five stages of grief. Hmm? You, you, the, the final stage is called, uh, is called the stage of, uh, uh, of acceptance. Hmm? And, and will it bring Ali back? Got us to acceptance. Now, when you when you get to acceptance you start to to do what something i call committed acceptance and committed acceptance is not just about grief it's about every difficult situation in your life every difficulty you face in life hmm, can be resolved when you uh, um, 
when you acknowledge that some things are unchangeable, right? And if they are unchangeable, there are, there is still there are still things you can do despite their presence that can make your life and the life of others better. Okay? And so instead of hitting my head against the wall, I decided I will write what I learned with Ali, you know, our happiness model, share it with the world. Okay? Hopefully get a few people to love him as much as I did. And that was my entire ambition. Okay? And, and yeah, it doesn't bring Ali back, but it definitely makes the world better after, his, after he left us. Okay? It definitely makes my world, bet my world better after he left us. And it, it sort of makes it feel that it wasn't for nothing that he left, if you know what I mean, right? Uh, and, and, and that concept is an understanding that is very logical so far. Now, let's go to the, to the, to the bit metaphysical, if you want. Death uh, is very misunderstood, okay? Uh, if you want to take the fables and the stories of spirituality, it will confuse you a little, even a little more. And I'm very spiritual, by the way, okay? But there is a ton of science hmm, that tells you that death is really not what we think it is at all, okay? That, that death really never happens, if you want. We never really die. Hmm? And, and, you know, I'll just pick a few until you tell me it's too much science, okay? <laughs> uh, um, okay? Uh, take any, any simple understanding of the Big Bang will tell you it was a small mass of matter that was compressed and exploded to create the universe, okay? Any simple understanding of quantum physics will tell you that no mass ever exists unless observed by life. Do you understand that? Yep. Okay. So, so, so for the universe to exist, hmm, uh, that mass had to be observed by life. Okay. Uh, before the universe, before the Big Bang started and all through the 13.7 billion years until 4.3 years, a billion years ago, the earth formed and then somewhere around uh, I think 300 million years ago is where, where life in the form that we know it started, okay? All of that had to be observed by life to exist, which basically means that life exists despite our presence. That's, that's number one. Number two is if you, a very, any basic understanding of the theory of relativity would tell you that for any of us humans to be able to, to observe the arrow of time, the passage of time, hmm, we have to exist outside space-time because you cannot observe anything unless you exist outside it. It's a subject-object relationship. You can't observe planet Earth unless you take a spaceship outside it and look at it, right? And so if, 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 the, if we have a perception of the passage of time, that means that the non-physical part of us exists outside space-time. Okay, which also means that this is not governed by space-time. The rules of physics and the rules of passage of time don't apply to the essence of who I am. And when you understand this, you realize that Ali, and everyone knows this, even the atheists of us, and by the way, I, I love how the atheists engage, uh, you know, a conversation. I'm partially atheist, even though I'm very religious, okay? And, and it's really interesting because the, the, every one of us knows that when my son was on that um, uh, intensive care table after he left his body, okay, that that body that remained behind wasn't my son, okay? It looked like my son, but it didn't have that amazing charm to it, okay? And, and, and somehow you realize that something missed, you know, something split. And that thing whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter, you know, religions and spirituality will call it a spirit, 
you know, call it a goat if you want, whatever you want. <laughs> mm? but, 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 that, but that thing mm, is outside space-time. And that thing was never affected by the loss of my son's life. Okay? In reality, life is not the opposite of death. Death is the opposite of birth. And if you take our, per, our, our physical journey through, the, through this physical universe, we come to this level of the game, if you want to call it, through a portal called birth, okay? And we leave this level of the game through a portal called death. But life exists before, during, and after. Life is irrelevant of your physical form. And if you get that fully inside you, it's easier to accept hmm, that I will be where Ali is right now, wherever it is, by the way, don't listen to fables, okay? But whatever happened to Ali when he left the controller that controlled his physical avatar, okay? I am probably sitting next to him, just still holding my controller. Okay, so just still hold, you know, controlling this physical avatar. And if you really think about it this way, you realize that sooner or later, maybe right after this Instagram ends, right after this life ends, or maybe in 27 years time, but sooner or later, I'll be there too. I will leave my controller and be where he is. And that gives you an assurance that nothing is wrong. We're there already. Okay, and then the final thing, and I know I took a little too long on this, but the final thing is a perspective issue, okay? Because somehow we take what life gives us for granted. Somehow life gives me this amazing gift that's called Ali and keeps him with me to brighten my life and increase my wisdom and, you know, fill me with love for 21 years, right? 21 and a half. And then he leaves, right? We think that we had a service level agreement with life. It's like, how can you take him? How can you take my son? First of all, he's not my son. It's, he's his own self, by the way. He has a journey to go on. But more importantly, nobody has ever questioned, oh, and by the way, thank you for giving him to me for 21 and a half years, right? When, when my brain tells me Ali died, I say, no, hold on, Ali lived. That's the biggest gift ever. Hmm? He, he lived and he gave me so much love so much wisdom for 21 and a half years, and I would be, I would be a, a hypocrite if I complained before 21 and a half years of pain. Do you understand this? That what he gave me for 21 and a half years is absolutely worth the pain of losing him for seven. And, and, and when you see this, you start to have a, a feeling of gratitude that he lived, not a feeling of disgruntlement that he died, because we all die. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, so basically what you've described there is acceptance, perspective and, and gratitude, which I think are, are three really which are, powerful are, Aren't tools. they the key to everything? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, they're the key. And, and, yeah. and such, such a key, especially in, in COVID times where a lot of our control has been removed from us. I think those three things you can always, you can always control internally, which, which gives you the power back in uh-huh. many ways. The story of COVID is really very straightforward. Honestly, I've been diagnosed with COVID myself and it's nasty, right? And I know people that lost loved ones and I know how it feels to lose a loved one, right? I know people that lost their jobs and it's difficult, it's hard, okay? But most people haven't. Hmm? Most people are, are, you know, if you're watching us right now, that means you're okay, you're healthy, right? I hope you didn't lose a loved one. And by the way, I, I, you know, even if you lost your job, it's gonna come back, but I really hope you didn't lose your job. The majority of people that have not lost either of those three 
their health, their loved ones, or their job. In all honesty, the only perspective you can have on COVID is, oh my God, I'm the luckiest person alive, right? There is a virus that a pandemic around me everywhere. There are issues that everyone is dealing with and I'm okay. If, if you're not unhealthy, you haven't lost a loved one and you haven't lost your economic livelihood to the point that you're suffering, then the extent of the pandemic for you is that they forced you to stay at home, work using Zoom and binge watch Netflix. This is it. Right. And if we're unable to handle this, then we're really spoiled. We're really spoiled. We're unable to have the right perspective to, to just remember how lucky we are. Okay. Imagine, imagine, I mean, I, I, I was born in 1967. If I was born in 1900, by the time I'm 54, like I am today, hmm, I would have had to live through a World War One, World War Two, uh, Spanish flu and smallpox. Combined, these would have killed a billion people, 970 million to be specific. A billion people. Hmm? Uh, COVID killed 7.8 last year, right? Every life matters, but the truth is we're lucky. We're able to find the vaccine. We're now working on a cure. It's, you know, yeah, it's not easy and it's painful and it's difficult for so many of us, but it could have been so much worse. And if you compare that perspective of how much worse it could have been, life becomes much easier. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, definitely strong, strong message for everyone to, uh, to take away with them today. Um, Mo, you mentioned there uh, something which you may or may not feel comfortable diving into, but I'm going to ask the question anyway, um, that, you, um, that you are a mixture between, you're, you're a spiritual atheist or you're partially atheist and you're very spiritual, probably is a paraphrase. And religious. And, and, religious, and religious. Okay, so I'd, I'd love to, if you yeah. wouldn't mind delving into that a bit deeper, I'd love to hear, because you're clearly yeah. such a, as you, met, as you said before, you're a hardcore scientist, logical individual, and science and religion are often sometimes viewed as being on different sides of a, of a, a debate. Uh, I, don't yeah. know, I don't necessarily agree with that myself, but um, they often are. And so I'd love to hear your your thoughts around that point? So, so let me start by praising science, right? So science and the scientific method has helped us so much, right? But science and science, the scientific method helped us so much because of a rigidity in the scientific method, which is if I can't observe it, it doesn't exist, okay? If I cannot observe something physical and measure it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, meaning I'm not going to study it. I'm, I don't, I'm not interested to, to talk about it because I can't study it. Okay. Uh, but everyone listening to us has felt love at a point in time, haven't you? Right. Love exists for sure. Hmm? And there isn't really a lot of scientific, uh, you know, rigor in terms of measuring, putting someone on a machine and saying this person loves or doesn't love in love or is, is not in love or being loved or not. Okay, we can't measure any of it, but love does actually exist. Okay, there is a science, an empirical science, if you want, uh, for things that are not measurable. Mm? And I call that spirituality. It's basically an attempt to deal with everything that is non-physical, an attempt, which, which makes it a little more, a little closer to philosophy, if you want, than it is to a science. Mm? But we do accept philosophy as a method of logic and debate and, and you know, of, of trying to find out details of things we cannot immediately measure. Now, that's science, and that, let's call it the philosophy that we call spirituality, hmm, has been massively messed up by religion. 
Why? Because religion has done a lot of wrong. You know, if a, you know, if someone carries a bomb in the name of religion, that's horrible, right? If uh, uh, you know a man of religion abuses a child or a woman, that's horrible. And you can go on and on and on. And the idea of you know, sort of um, uh, confining people to the point where it becomes almost unacceptable is just not making anyone like religion anymore. Having said that, I follow what I call the fruit salad approach. Okay. And the fruits, yeah, it's very simple. I'm, you know, if you ask me if I'm a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or a Buddhist or whatever, I'll, I'll tell you I'm a fruit salad. Right? <laughs> and, and, it's, <laughs> and it's really very straightforward. If I gave you a basket of oranges and that basket of oranges had nine bad oranges and three really good ones, okay, do you throw the whole basket away or do you keep the three good ones, right? And everyone will say, I'll keep the three good ones, right? And, and, the, and the point here is that every religion, hmm, whether it has nine bad oranges or two bad oranges or 11 of the 12, it doesn't matter, has a very good one, okay? Christianity and the concept of love, uh, you know, uh, Buddhism and the con concept of compassion, uh, you know, and I can, you know, um, Islam and the concept of surrender, and I can go on for hours, honestly, for hours, okay? And they're wonderful concepts, wonderful concepts in so many ways that, you know, I'll take the orange from Islam and the, you know, apple from Christianity and the banana from, and, and I keep going to make a fruit salad, right? And, and there, are, there is so much beauty and it's almost stupid hmm, uh, to, to say, no, 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 all of it is bad. Uh, the clever people say, no, there is, there is some good. I'll take the good and I'll drop the bad, right? Now, it, even atheism, in my point of view, is a religion, okay? What defines a religion? A religion basically defines three things. Okay, it defines a relationship with the divine, it defines a relationship with others, and it defines a relationship with yourself in order to alleviate unhappiness. Okay, in, in order to live a reasonably well, you know, a life of well-being in this life. Hmm? Atheism has a position on all three. It has a position on the divine. Okay, it has a position on dealing with others based on that. Hmm? And it has a position on dealing with yourself based on that. Right. And, and if you basically look at it this way, atheism itself comes with a beautiful part of the fruit salad, which is let's debate. Let's look at those things hmm, with an objective eye and say those fables hmm, uh, that, that religion uses that worked 2000 years ago or 4000 years, years ago. You know, they're really not in line with what we're doing in this modern world where we started to learn a lot more. Okay, and it would be so much so beneficial for religions to say, guys, look, the person that wrote this died a thousand four hundred years ago before quantum physics ever existed. So forgive him. He didn't know. Yeah. Okay. And and and, and the idea here is to say, I, I don't need anyone to tell me this, but I can tell myself hmm, that, the, that the concept of surrender and committed acceptance when I talk about committed acceptance. Okay. That's a very Islamic uh, um, uh, you know, approach to life. When I talk about, you know, the approach to love and dealing with everything with love and dealing with everything with unconditional love, even if you disagree, that's a very Sufi concept. The compassion for others is a very Buddhist concept. Okay. These are wonderful things to bring into your life and others. Hmm? So don't follow an ego. Hmm? Don't tell yourself I'm a spiritual hacker. Don't tell yourself I'm a, a, a strict, uh, you know, uh, extreme uh, extremist of this religion or the other. Tell yourself I'm seeking, okay? I'll, 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 I kept seeking to the point that my last chapter in, in Soul for Happy 
chapter 14 is my mathematical interpretation of the divine. Okay? And I will have to tell you openly in front of everyone, even though if some people dislike me, please read the chapter. I mean, I, I'm happy to send it to you for free. There, there is very little probability. Okay? There is no proof, by the way. There is absolutely zero way you can prove there is a God. Okay? And there is absolutely zero way you can prove with certainty that there isn't. As a matter of fact, the scientific method, basically one of the rules says, you cannot prove a negative. You cannot prove that something doesn't exist. Because if that was the case, we would have, we would have proven that bacteria didn't exist before we had microscopes. Right? There, there could be something. So there is no way you can prove for or against. It's a question of probability. Right? And my mathematics will simply say, yeah, it is possible that all of our universe and everything in it happened as a result of evolution and natural selection. But let's calculate the probability of that. Right? And if the probability is one in a trillion, hmm, then maybe that's not the probability I want to bet on. Right? If the probability is, uh, is, uh, is basically saying, um, you know, it worked this way for, for millennia because we had infinite time, maybe we should go back to science and say, no, no, we didn't have infinite time. We had 13.7 billion years from the beginning of the universe, we had 4.3 billion years from the beginning of planet Earth, and, and so on. And we can actually factor the T into the probability equations, right? And then suddenly you start to think about it differently and say, look, maybe everything religion told me about the divine is actually not true. But there, but there seems to be a good probability that this very complex origami that, we've, that we live in hmm, wasn't done by trial and error. Okay, that this very complex origami had a, a design manual. Someone told you fold this and then fold that, which actually is very true. If you take something like protein folding, for example, I, I don't know if, of course, you probably understand the concept, but you know, the formation of protein is you take those very complex strands of amino acids and then they start to bend and form until they form the intended device that the protein is supposed to be, right? Uh, you know, it, it, the, the shortest of all proteins known to humanity would take 27 million, billion, billion times the age of, of planet Earth to go through all of the trials that is needed to form itself randomly. Okay? Is it possible that, you know, through a stroke of luck, it happened on, this, on the first time? Possible. But what's the probability of that? Okay. Is it possible that it happened the first time and then every single other one in, in the 20,000 uh, 20, proteins that make up your body also happened by luck at the same time? Now the probabilities look really weird to me. Okay. And I'm not saying there is a God. I avoid using the brand name because religion took over that brand. I'm just saying there is a design. There seems to be an incredible design that's following through this very incredibly awe-inspiring universe, right? And who the designer is, what the relation of the designer is with us, you know, is the designer favoring Jesus and asking him, and allowing him to walk on water, but not me. All of that is irrelevant. These are other layers of the problem. Yeah. Okay? But to my mind, there clearly is a designer. Brilliant, brilliant interpretation. I never, I, I, never, way... I, I never spoke about this in public, by the way. Really? Oh, I love that. Um, yeah, it's, all of it. yeah, it's um, it's great. I think lots of people sort of accept the parts of the equation that haven't been filled in yet. But you're, I love the way that you're bringing in the, the figures to try and 
actually uh, complete yeah, yeah. the equation yeah. and use that to make a decision. It's a really um, unique perspective. So, so there is a difference. There is a big difference between faith and knowledge. Okay, because when you when you have a belief and faith, you behave in a certain way. And when the mathematics tell you, come on, there clearly is some designer out there. Mathematics don't lie. Right. And then suddenly my entire life shifts into I'm not out here to just make a difference to the world and have a billion happy and make a bit of money and all of the things that we chase. Openly, I tell the world part of my journey in life is I'm trying to figure out a little bit more about the divine. If there is something out there, I might as well be interested in the topic, right? And I'll, I'll never figure it out because it's non-physical, but I should be interested in the topic. I think that's the whole point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a wonderful way to look at things. Um, I, you mentioned there, uh, I'm just going to pick out one word out of that, that very uh, complex um, discussion, but you mentioned seeking ego. And uh, ego is something, um, well, I use the word ego because it's the word from Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now book. But I saw a lot of, a lot of um, overlap in, um, in some of the themes that were coming through in, in your book as well. And you, and you talk about it as a, the mind or many other different uh, words for it. But basically the, the voice inside our heads, for want of a better term. Um, I'd, lo I'd love you to talk to the listeners about um, why taking control of that or letting go of that maybe is a better way of looking at it um, is such an important thing to do for us to achieve happiness. Two, 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 two concepts here, the concept of ego and the concept of you know, being generated by the voice inside your head. You know, Eckhart Tolle, by the way, three cheers to Eckhart Tolle, one amazing teacher that changed so many lives. Um, uh, you know, the, the idea of ego here is our, you know, constant attempt to identify as something, whether we are that thing or not, but that constant attempt to identify as something really puts us in a place where so much of our effort and so much of our dissatisfaction in life comes as a result of that, right? So, so th think about, uh, you know, and, and by the way, ego is not arrogance. Uh, ego is, um, you know, I, 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 I'll, I'll tell you openly, huh? I'm, I've worked on ego strictly as my single project for four and a half years, which was 12 years ago, and I'm still working on it. Okay. And I still, I'm full of egos. I, I just told you that I am a mathematician and physicist and an engineer. And I, you can see in my, my words and my, you know, the way I talk about it, that I and identify as that, you know, I wear, I wear simple t-shirts instead of fancy Armani suits. Okay. And, you know, at the point in time you go, like, you see, I'm, I'm, curbing my ego. No, I'm not. I'm identifying as a Silicon Valley executive who is not really concerned about right. And, and you're, you're, it's very difficult to escape ego. Huh? There is also a utility to ego. So when I, when I present myself to the audience at the, at the beginning of the conversation as an author and a CEO and, you know, chief business officer of Google X and a podcaster and all of that, Right. People go like, hmm, maybe interesting guy to listen to. Hmm? So there is a utility to it. The game with ego is to own it and not let it own you. OK. And the test of that is very straightforward. The test of that is if I'm trying to identify as athletic and then, you know, a, 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 a wonderful woman approaches me and says, what's that belly? OK, I, I should I, no, I, I really shouldn't go crazy about it. Hmm? If I don't go berserk and say, what belly, what are you talking about? I hate everything about life. Then I'm not attached to my ego. 
You know, I'm trying to be athletic as my definition of athletic is, and that's perfect. No problem at all, right? Uh, ego, and uh, I always say, by the way, ego is the second biggest reason for unhappiness in our world, just so, so that you know. So it's a, of all of the things that make us unhappy, ego is the number two, because you're constantly chasing a dream of people believing in the identity you're trying to, to, to portray, and people are not interested in your identity. They're interested in their own identities. They're always going to crush you uh, because they don't care, right? So uh, you, might, you, you might as well not pretend and not be interested. Okay, you know, I, I cite the, the the story of the you know in in, in a lot of uh, fables uh, in in old uh, cultures about the the son and the father and the and the donkey going to the to the market uh, first the, the you know the father rides and the the people say what's you know what a cruel father and then uh, you know the son rides the the donkey and then. You know, the people say, what a, a you know, an, an impolite um, uh, a child, and then both ride and they say, what cruel people to, to, do, to do this to the horse. Then they both carry the horse and they call them idiots, right? And, and or the donkey. And, yeah, and, and, the, and the idea is, yeah, yeah people, people will never be satisfied with what you pretend to be, what you're trying to be. It doesn't matter. So, so give that up, okay? Ego and everything else is a result of uh, thought. Okay. The only thing that I could find in the, in, the, in the human experience that is not the result of thought is unconditional love. Okay. Everything else results from a thought. Anything that happens to you, any emotion, any action, any uh, uh, stubbornness, any um, uh, whatever. Okay. It's, it, it's all first triggered by a thought. Okay. And that thought tells you I uh, want to make sure that people see me this way because that's the way to fit in or whatever that is, okay? Um, uh, thoughts are interesting because they're an amazing piece of machinery that we have up, up there that, you know, has me and you across the world, you saying a few words, I understand them, I respond to them. And then when you nod with your head, I know that this is a sign of approval. And all of these are thoughts bubbling in my head and yours all the time. Now. The challenge with thoughts, however, is that we identify ourselves as that as if those thoughts are me telling me what to do. Do, do, do you understand this? The problem with, thought, with, with, with that little voice in our head, and Eckhart Tolle covers this amazingly well, hmm? uh, the thinker, he calls it, right? Uh, you know, the, 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 the problem with the thinker is it can think as much as it wants as long as I feel that it's a third party. Okay, if it's a third party, then it can suggest things and I can say no, you can ask me the next question, you know, if Simon is a third party and I go like, no, Simon, I don't want to answer that. Okay, <laughs> or you can, uh, you know, seriously, right? We do that all the time with friends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you see your thoughts as a third party, everything changes. Now, what proves to you that your thoughts are a third party? There are lots of layers. Layer one is you disagree with them sometimes. Did you realize that? Huh? Sometimes people, you know, you get a thought in your head and you go, I know that's stupid, right? If it was you, you wouldn't have disagreed with it. It's your thought, okay? Number two is there is a, a, a ton of science hmm, that will tell you that uh, those thoughts in your head, they're called the internal dialogue. And the internal dialogue is simply your brain trying to make sense of concepts around it in the only building block of knowledge that we have, which is what? words, right? Since you were a child, you know, you started to narrate everything. This is a car, this is a plane. Hmm? And then afterwards, you actually start to make that 
inward. You turn that dialogue inside. Hmm? And, 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 you know, MRI studies by uh, an MIT in 2007, for example, would show you hmm, that when you give people uh, puzzles inside the MRI machine, they use the appropriate relevant problem solving uh, mechanism in the prefrontal cortex to, to solve the problem. And then the, um, the verbal association part of your brain would actually blink for up to eight seconds because your brain is telling, is taking that answer that it found and turning it into words so that you understand it. Your brain is literally talking to you. Amazing. Okay? And then, and then of course, and of course, the simplest way to look at it is to, is to realize there is a subject object relationship. Again, you know, the only way, f you know, if, if you, if this voice was you telling you what to do, okay, why would it need to talk? The, the only reason it's talking is because it's not you. Okay. And, 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 and then you start to realize it's just, a biological function, you know, your, your kidneys has, have a biological function. They take urine out of your body. You never tell yourself that you're urine. It's, it's, it's you know, you, it's a, really the reality is you don't identify with the biological products of your organs. Okay. Your brain has the, has the biological function of making sense of the world and turning concepts into something you can understand. So you can, you decide, decide on it. Okay. Yet we say, I think, therefore I am. It's not, I think, therefore I am. It's, I am, therefore my brain thinks. Okay. And as I said, once you get that, everything ends. Because basically, when your brain starts to give you stupid, stupid stories, you can simply say, that's stupid. You know, when it, when it criticizes you and de deals with you as the harshest person that's ever dealt with you, you can say, I don't want this. Uh, you know, that's not right. When, when it tells you, uh, uh, when it orders you, you can debate and say, why are you asking me to do this? Okay. And the best of all, the best of all is you can tell it to shut the F up. <laughs> like seriously. Okay. I'm, I'm sitting here brain. I'm in really enjoying this conversation with Simon. Why are you bringing this topic now? Like, can you please shut up? Okay. I'll come to you and talk to you later, later when don't ask me when, when I feel like it, I'll come talk to you later. When you establish, when you establish that third party relationship, everything becomes easier. Every thought becomes debatable and accordingly you don't suffer unnecessarily. And is, is that uh, just a skill that one learns through repetition or are there individual skills that need, or, or techniques that need to be applied? Yeah. Because um, I, I read Power of Now must have been five years ago now and on a regular basis, I'm still battling with this internal dial. Even yesterday, I, I run a, a, yeah. a small uh, toothpaste startup and uh, we had a few difficulties and, and we've run out of stock on certain items. And it just, it made me so angry. And I had this, this and, I, and I was like, Simon, because I, I, I've, I've been reading your book recently. So I was like, Simon, you need to be stronger here internally and actually yeah. have perspective and uh, and have gratitude. and. And yet when it comes to actually implementing those things, it becomes sometimes uh, insurmountable yeah. for me anyway. It, it, it really is. I mean, and it's funny that you bring that topic in the context of power of now. The, it does take practice. And I will tell you that my, my secret, I've, uh, you know, I, I, a massive turning point in my life was A New Earth by, by Eckhart Tolle. And, and you know, a, a massive idea was the separation between your brain and your uh, and your uh, yourself. And and so um, 
you know, my brain got it the first time. It's like, oh my God, that's amazing. Hmm? And then it would hijack me over and over and over. And I used a very interesting practice, okay? And the practice was this. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard Eckhart Tolle uh, speak. He's an amazing, amazing wise teacher, but he speaks very slowly. slowly. <laughs> yeah. Very slowly. And so what I did is I told my brain every time it will hijack me, I will listen to the audiobook 17 hours of the of a new earth again. Okay. <laughs> and I, I don't remember. I don't remember how many hours actually, but I remember I listened to it. I swear to you, this is the truth. I listened to it 17 times. And wow. Eckhart Tolle speaks really slowly. Okay. <laughs> But, but, but basically on, on the 17th time, my brain was like, I am really sorry. I'm never going to pretend I knew again. Okay. I'm never going to do that again. That's it's just unacceptable. Right. Brilliant. And, and, and the thing here is it's, it's just neuroplasticity. Hmm? You count the tens of years where you're, where you're, you were accepting that entity as you and look at the number of neurons in your brain that behave in a way that are, you know, that, where the networks are saying, listen to your brain, listen to your brain, listen to the poison inside your head. And it takes practice. It simply takes enough instances of that machine, okay, what being wired differently. I find personally that everything I've ever done, uh, if you really focus on it, with 21 days, you, it, it shifts, okay? It shifts to the point that you see uh, a, a change. But it gets to perfection, and I know this might, might sound really, maybe, um, uh, you know, not encouraging for some people, but it's the truth. You know, so, the, some of those concepts take you up to four and a half years, okay? But in four and a half years, it's second nature, okay? You're so good at it, you know, and, and I try to do that. If I want to get a billion people to be happy, I need to be the Olympic champion of happiness, <laughs> right? And, 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 and truly, yeah, and, and I have a very, very uh, rigorous exercise and a flow chart and a system and a method that allows me to, to just repeatedly do the same practices over and over and over in situations of, you know, confusions or situations of stress and so on and so forth. And believe it or not, I'm able to shut my brain's induced happiness on average in seven seconds. I measure it. Okay. On average, I go through what I call the happiness flow chart. We may not have the time to go through it today. And within seven seconds, the thought will stop. And the happiness will go, the unhappiness will go away. Amazing. I'd, I'd love, I'd love you. I mean, I, I've got the time. If you, if you'd be happy to go through that flow chart, I think it'd be I, really. I, 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 I would love to, but I think Instagram is going to kick us out in six minutes or so. It has that one hour uh, limit. One on. hour cap. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay. Well, let's let's not go into that today. Then maybe save that for another time. Just just one point that you uh, that you did raise there, um, which. Um, is something that really stuck for me from the book as well is going back to factory settings uh, or default settings and yeah. reaching our childlike state. And I thought that was a really powerful takeaway that, that people can implement and as a, as a concept is, is very useful. So I'd love to, um, to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, I, I, I come to that in a minute, but I need to answer a very important question that came here, which was, should we consider emotions as third parties too? Absolutely not. Emotions are what makes you who you are. 
Okay, and one of the biggest challenges we have in the modern world, by the way, is that we is that we uh, shut down emotions because the the busyness of life in the modern world is sort of driving us to say, uh, don't be fragile, don't be vulnerable. These are signs of weaknesses. We don't want any of those. Emotions are the only times in your life where you feel alive. Okay, whatever the emotion is, by the way, but don't get stuck into them. Don't get stuck into them. Huh? Acknowledge them. Uh, you know, uh, 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 embrace them, love them, but then start to do something about them, okay? An emotion is triggered by a thought, and a thought is not always correct. It's, you know, if it is correct, it requires you to do something about it, so do it. And that's it, right? You feel a little anxious about, a, a, you know, a presentation tomorrow, great, you know, embrace the emotion, and then go work on your presentation. It's as simple as that. Okay? And, if, and of course, if you cannot, you know, if you're anxious about something you cannot change, then it's committed acceptance. And that's it in, in a nutshell, really. Um, so, so going back to the default setting, um, you, you can do a ton of research because, you know, if you're an author, you really have to have a lot of references, you know, and, and so that your book has material in it. I did like four hours research uh, on YouTube, basically, uh, to realize that every child you've ever seen was born happy, right? And, and that's it, really. You don't need scientific research. You don't need MIT to spend a million dollars behind it. It's, it's simple. Huh? Every child you've ever seen, if they're fed and safe and given their basic needs for survival, their state is happy. Okay? It's our innate default setting. The, the truth is we are not, uh, we don't need to seek happiness. We just need to avoid unhappiness. If we, you know, in the absence of unhappiness, our default state is happy. Okay, and and of course, if we you know we didn't come to the happiness equation today, but the definition of happiness really is it's that calm and contentment, it's peaceful feeling that I'm okay with life. Okay, oh, being okay with life actually doesn't require anything from life. You can you can be in the sun and 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 happy, or in the rain and happy. It's your choice, really. Okay, it doesn't require anything from outside you. If you're okay with it, you'll feel happy. Okay, the the trick though is there are so many unhappiness triggers in our life and we let them linger we let them take over our life if your partner is annoying have a conversation tonight okay give them three chances if they're not you know if if, if it's not working there are 3.4 other billion people out there that qualify okay so, 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 so simple you know you just move on with life if your job is not working really well start searching it may take you six months eight months, a year in the current conditions, but you're going to find the job and leave the job that's annoying you. And the trick here is, uh, uh, you know, is, 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 is think about the idea of, uh, of, 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 of removing the reasons for your unhappiness so that you can surface your default position. Okay. You know, just remove everything that's cluttering your life, that's annoying your life, that's causing you unhappiness. Be be responsible, be an adult, hmm? take charge and remove those things. As you remove them, your chances of finding the deep happiness inside you will, will be a lot easier. It will rise. Brilliant. Well, Mo, we're going to have to leave it there because we've, we've run out of time. But thank you so much for your time today. It was a, a beautiful conversation and I really feel that I've learned a lot personally from it. And um, yeah, really hope to, to have you back on again one day because I think we've probably got another two, two podcasts worth of conversation there to get through. But um, thanks again. And uh, I, I, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be honored and delighted. I'd probably love to host you on my podcast as well on Slow Mo. That's very I think kind. that would be an amazing experience for me as well. Yeah.
I'd love to. I'd love to. Okay, Mo, thank you so much. All the best. And to you. Thank you. Bye. Hi, guys. Simon again here. Just one more thing before you guys go. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really hope it gave you an immense amount of value. If I could ask just one thing of you all, please subscribe to the podcast. Please share it. Please write a review if you enjoyed it. Please talk to your friends about it. The bigger the podcast gets, the better the guests I can get on and the more value I can give back to you all. So that's it from me. I'll see you on the next one. And until next time, enjoy the ride.